I know many of you are asking yourself a very important question, especially you freshmen who are coming to school for the first time. You're asking, what am I made of? We ask ourselves that question, don't we? What am I made of when we go through a transition in life? You're filled with excitement. You're filled with a sense of expectation. But uh, what, what, Brandon? Make it. Here we go. Like right now, I'm wondering what this microphone is made of. Uh, but you're pursuing goals that can be a little bit uncomfortable, exciting, but uncomfortable. And we all go through that. Whether the transition is into parenthood, a new job, a promotion, an important relationship, there is a sense of, do I have what it takes? I remember asking myself that question when I was just a freshman in college. I was in Dr. Spann's class, and he talked like this. And he would sit down and lecture for hours. And he had an enormous chair that looked like a king's throne that he would sit on. And he never even used notes. He was a very bright man, so I'll stop talking like this. But that's how I talked. And very difficult class, even though it was just a general ed. The class consisted of just three tests. That was your whole grade, and they were all essay. And you used those little blue books. Do you guys still use those? Those cursed little blue books. Uh, you don't. Well, they were these little blue books uh, that are made in hell. That's the manufacturer. And I would fill out the entire thing. You get a hand cramp. You're filling out the whole thing as fast as you can. And, and then additional notebook paper. So anyway, I take my first real test of my life. You know, because high school can sometimes be a little easier. This was a major test. 50 pages of lecture notes. Very boring lectures. And multiple boring books. The most boring books I've ever read in my life. Welcome to college. Right? So I prepare for this test more than I've prepared for any single thing I think in my life up to that point. And I come in. And I mean, let me tell you. I knew it so well, I even knew what I didn't know. I mean, I could test myself on what I didn't know. I knew it so well. And I thought for sure, I even told the professor, Dr. Spann, I'm going to knock this thing out of the park. And so, took the test, and not so much. Got the grade back, 60%. Man, I was absolutely devastated. I had worked so hard, and I realized, man, do I have what it takes? And uh, so... When I got the test back, though, there was reason to have hope. Because, you see, there was one question that said, did you read the book, yes or no? That was the only easy question on the test. And me, trying to be the good test taker, said, I'm going to save this question at the end. And I'm going to do all the essays. Then I'm going to write my yes in all caps so I can leave with confidence. Well, I forgot to fill it in. So I thought for sure, well, at least now I've got a 70, which is a low C, and averaged in, you know, I'll be fine. So I call Dr. Spann. Dr. Spann, you know, I'm a scared freshman. Dr. Spann, this is, uh, this is Chris Old. Uh, I was just wondering, you know, I know I took your test and I got a 60%, and uh, would it be possible for me to get those points since I did read this book? And let me add, just as a parenthesis, it was the most boring, most difficult book I've ever written. It's older than the Bible. I forget what the title is. And it, the Bible's awesome. This book was not. And uh, so, so he says, well, no, Chris, in my class, all tests are final. You turned in your test. I'm sorry. You will not get the 10 points. And this is not a guy you argued with. What he said went. And then I said, okay, Dr. Spann, but, you know, be, would it be possible to maybe get a little extra credit so I could get those 10 points back? And I kid you not, he says, Mr. Old, 
there will be no extra credit when you stand before God, and there will be no extra credit in my class. <laughs> so here's what I did. I did have what it took. All right, I decided right then and there, I'm a pretty competitive guy. This guy is not going to get the best of me. And I recorded every single lecture. I hand copied my notes, recopied them after every class, listened to the lecture again, then retyped all my notes on my brother's word processor, which was cutting edge, te cutting edge technology back then, dates me a little bit. And I got A's, almost 100% on the rest of his test, got a low B in the class, saw him in the restroom the next semester. And he says, Mr. Old, I was upset to see that you chose, you know, whatever other professor for your second session of Western civilization. And I said, Dr. Spann, it's because I think you're incredibly unfair, and I think you did me wrong. And I walked out. I had it. So you're wondering, do I have what it takes? Is it in me? How many of you have ever seen that Gatorade commercial, Is It In You? Have you seen that? You know, all these professional athletes, and is it in you? And, Millions of dollars are spent marketing to, uh, are you raising your hand because you have a question, Megan? Yes, I did. I did, and I would say it again if I ever saw him. He's retired now, praise the Lord. Uh, but anyway, so you, all these millions of dollars are spent asking the question, uh, forcing us to ask the question, do I have whatever it is, the it, to uh, accomplish what I want to do in life, to be a person of substance? Do I have what it takes? And it's, important, it's an important question. We need to ask that question. You know, I asked myself that question when I married uh, my beautiful wife. I remember laying down in our uh, apartment, and I was very young. Uh, I was 15. No, I wasn't that young. But I was in college. Everybody jokes around with me that I was. Uh, I was in college in married student housing, cinder block walls, extremely hot, built around World War II, uh, very unsafe. And uh, in fact, I was walking through a COSI exhibit one time that had uh, appliances through time or something like that was the title. And it was all these old appliances. And I saw my stove and my furnace. And my, I kid you not. And that's how it was. I mean, this furnace sounded like, how many of you have heard of the River Dancers? They're kind of an old, I don't think anyone, yeah, you haven't. No one has, really. But anyway, the River Dancers are these very gifted tap dancers. I got to hear them every night when I turned the furnace on. It was, and I'm laying there thinking, how am I going to sleep with this, realizing, man, I, I'm now married. Do I have what it takes? And that drove me. That drives us when we think, I know there's something in me greater than meets the eye. And I know that this external pressure forcing me out of my comfort zone is going to make me better. Risk, we don't take risk if we don't ask this question. Do I have what it takes? What am I made of? It's an important question. But in secular humanism and David Hume's naturalism that many of you have learned or will learn, it says that we are simply the product of our environment and our biology. That in fact, all of us are here tonight just because of family influences and other environmental experiences and because of our genetics. We don't really have a choice. It just happened. We are a product of our environment and our genetics. We are, in essence, sophisticated animals. 
But the worldview recorded in the Bible is very different. You know, we've been reading the book of Romans, and the Apostle Paul wrote much of the New Testament. The New Testament is the, uh, God's redemptive history recorded at and after uh, the birth of Christ. And he wrote much of the New Testament. He wrote this letter to the church in Rome. This church was really going through it. They were really going through it. You see, uh, the Jewish Christians, well, all Jews, had been exiled from Rome for five years. And upon their return to Rome, they saw that this Jewish Christian church was not as Jewish as it used to be because now it was filled with Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. Back then, uh, Christianity was a sect of Judaism. So they come back and they're wondering, uh, really, how Jewish does a Gentile Christian need to become in order to be fully Christian? Circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath laws, and all the rest. So there was this incredible tension and need for unity. So the Holy Spirit, using Paul, writes the the fullest explanation of the gospel, that is the rescue mission of Jesus Christ that has ever been recorded. It answers the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? What does it mean to follow Christ? And he gets at the heart of what it is. And and in summary, the whole book can be summarized. Someone is a Christian. They are a Christ follower only because Jesus has rescued them from their sin. It's not by their own effort. It's not by uh, how religious they are. It's not by how moral they are. It is simply because Christ transforms our lives when we call upon him to rescue us from our sin. That's right. Thank you. That's right. Uh, you know, we read, I listened to a podcast here recently by Susan Blackmore, and it was very troubling. See, she is a secular humanist, and she would be in the same camps as uh, folks like Richard Dawkins. And she said that, uh, our, again, this idea that all of our actions in life, all of who we are is simply determined by our genetics and by our environment. That even her children, when they misbehave, she realizes that it's not, they have no control. They have no control. It's just they are a product of their environment. And the solution, the problem in that that worldview is simply let's improve genetics and let's improve the environment. Okay, so if we just invest in medicine and we work on human behavioral and cognitive issues and all that kind of thing, that's how we can thrive. That's the problem. Salvation is in us. But the biblical worldview is very different. We read in Romans 1 that God created everything. He created all of life. He created the whole world. He created the whole universe. He is the God of four billion sons. And that everything has its life and has its being through him. And then in Romans 3, we said that the problem is is not somehow simply improving genetics and environment. The problem is we have a sin nature. Where we would agree with secular humanists is, yes, our sin nature will control us. We'll control every aspect of us unless we're rescued by Jesus Christ. We become at odds with ourselves and others when we're at odds with God. The Bible declares a gospel that we become fully human, much more more than just sophisticated animals. 
relying on environment, the environment and genetics when we follow Christ. And we read last week in Romans 6 that the solution to our brokenness and the brokenness we see around us is in Christ. We even said those two words were paramount to understanding the gospel, that we are in Christ, that that is the answer. It's not about religion. It's not about adherence to a bunch of moral laws. That's not it. It's about a relationship with a person, Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. In fact, if you wanted to summarize the entire book of Romans in just two words, it would be in Christ. And for those of you who know and love Jesus, we said that the most important thing that you can remember on a day-to-day and moment-by-moment basis is I am in Christ. My righteousness is found in Christ. My confidence is found in Christ. My joy is found in Christ. My life is in Christ. My future is in Christ. The guilt and condemnation of my past has been taken care of in Christ. That that's the answer. That is a simple prayer that you can pray. Thank you that I'm in Christ. And it stills the voices inside of us that try to tell us that we are condemned. We start tonight in Romans 8, and it answers the question, two questions, how does Christ rescue us from sin, and what does a life transformed by him look like? So how does Jesus rescue us from sin? This is very important. We're talking about the guts of salvation. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's super key. This verse is super key to understanding Jesus' rescue mission for sinful humanity. The great 20th century Welsh preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, that most of our troubles, that is for Christ followers, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. So, Because if Christ followers forget this truth, that there's no condemnation in him, Uh, It's catastrophic. Because on the one hand, if we live in condemnation, we feel incredible guilt and pain, and it's unnecessary. And this guilt begins to affect our conscience, and it makes us insecure, and it affects our relationships. We feel like we're not worthy, so we try to work harder for God. We become more sensitive to criticism. We worry more. We lack confidence in relationships. We find no joy in prayer and worship. If we don't walk in this no condemnation. But on the other hand, if we live in condemnation, that is if we think that it's all about us and somehow we don't measure up to God's standards, we don't, but he's measured up for us in Christ. If we don't live under this banner of no condemnation, then we don't live a self-controlled life because we're motivated by fear and obligation. And we all know that a much better motivator is gratitude and love, isn't it? That's what God wants for us. Not, well, I better do all the right things or God's going to smite me dead. That's not the motivation. The Bible says perfect love cast out fear. What motivates is gratitude and love. And we're going to see that as we unpack this. Again, Lloyd-Jones illustrates this best. He says, the difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man transgressing the laws of the state and a husband who's done something he should not do in his relationship with his wife. He's not breaking the law. He's wounding the heart of his wife. That's the difference. It's no longer a legal matter. It's a matter of personal relationship and love. The man doesn't cease to be a husband legally in that instance. Law does not come into the matter at all. It's a sense 
In a sense, it's now something much worse than a legal condemnation. I would rather offend against a law of the land objectively outside of me than hurt someone whom I love. In that case, you've sinned, of course. You've sinned against love. So you may and should feel ashamed, but you should not feel condemnation because to do so is to put yourself back under the law. You see, Romans will teach us, and Romans 8 tonight will teach us that the believer, the Christ follower, has a different relationship to the law of God. Again, the law of God is contained in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, and many other commandments written about in the Old Testament. That, that our relationship to the law has changed. We're incapable of keeping God's law because we're born with the sinful nature. The purpose of God's law is to show us that we're a sinner. It's to show us that, hey, you can't keep it together. You can't, it's to show what sin is. Here are the commands. We know we can't keep them, so then, as a result, we know what sin is. We're literally not able to keep God's law because we're born with a sinful nature. It's like being born in another country. You are native to that country. You are a citizen. To then become a citizen of another country, let's say the U.S., Something has to change because your status, no matter how good of a person you are, you are a citizen of Honduras. Your citizenship has got to change. All of us, by nature, are lawbreakers. We cannot, not one person, has ever kept the law of God except for Jesus. He took all of our sins upon himself, the Bible said. In fact, it says he became sin on the cross. Think of the most heinous sin ever. Or actually, don't think about it. Jesus became that. He became a murderer. He became an adulterer and all the rest. Then when he rose from the dead, he gave us his righteousness so that positionally we could be holy before God. Our citizenship changes from sinful nature to citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He died to take what was rightfully ours. That is our sin and eternal separation from God. That was ours. He, died. he took that from us. And then he rose to give us what was rightfully his. That's righteousness and holiness and an abundant life. A life filled with joy and peace and an eternity with him. Romans 8 continues here on this question. How does God rescue us from sin? Again, Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So a little background here. When Jesus died and rose again on the third day, then 40 days later ascended to God the Father, he left God's people with the indwelling Holy Spirit. So God the Father sent God the Son, who then left us with God the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. We're not going to get into all that tonight, but the three persons of God, three in one. And so the Holy Spirit gives us the power to follow and love Christ, the power and the desire to do what pleases him. So the Holy Spirit who indwells the Christ follower gives us life and sets us free from the law of sin and death. The power of sin is both legal condemnation and internal corruption. Now, what do I mean by that? That the power of sin is both legal condemnation and internal corruption. Well, I don't know what I mean by that. I just thought it sounded cool. No, I'm kidding. I do know. You know, it is, we're going to be cleaning out those air conditioning units because I think that's why, it, does it feel hot in here to you guys? 
Yeah, I am next level hot. Maybe it's because I basically had heat stroke this afternoon. So forgive me if I start sweating profusely. Uh, The death of Christ defeats the sin of those who have been rescued by him by paying the debt that we deserve for sin. And we get this. We understand a debt for a crime. If you cheat on someone, if you kill someone, uh, if uh, you are uh, caught in a situation where somehow you take advantage of someone else, we understand in every culture that a crime has been committed and justice must be served. We get that. It's built into us by God. So living in rebellion towards God is a state of being, like being in a citizen of a country. No matter how moral or immoral, religious or irreligious, good or bad, you or I perceive ourselves to be. We are citizens of sin without Christ, and it's the ultimate crime against God because he made us. He made us in his image. We live and breathe because he wills it, and we've all chosen to go our own way. So legally, Jesus paid, paid our debt and offers that relief from legal debt to all who will receive his free gift of salvation. But he doesn't just defeat sin. That's huge, that he set us free from legal condemnation. It's an ultimate gift, but he also frees us from the internal corruption caused by our sinful nature, meaning he doesn't just defeat sin, he wipes it out of our lives. He makes us more like, like himself every day after he's rescued us from sin. It's a big theological word called sanctification. But here's the point. This is amazing news because it means it's not based on our own efforts. It's not about trying to go to church as much as you possibly can. That's a good thing to do. It's not about helping as many people as you possibly can, though that's a good thing to do. It's about simply responding to the reality that Christ lives in us. Three and four continue to unpack the good news here. It says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to, uh, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So flesh here is referring to the sinful nature. And I want to read this verse in another translation to help us understand it. It's the same exact content, just a little bit easier reading level. It says in Romans 8, verse 3, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Remember, we can't keep the law. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. I like this translation because it gets to the purpose of Jesus' entire existence, what he's all about. Jesus' whole existence, he is obsessed and focused on making us like himself. Because he knows in making us like himself that that's where true love is found. That's, what true, that's where true joy is found. That's where true reconciliation is found between us and God and between, uh, between one another. He knows it's the solution to all the brokenness we see every time we turn on the news or look at it on our phones. That's what he lives for. And there could not be a greater motivation to live a holy life 
the knowing when we sin, it's more than just about, man, now my record is tarnished. That's, it's not about that. It's I have hindered what Jesus' ultimate purpose for me is. He lives for this. The Bible says he lives to make intercession for us. That is, he's always on the move. We have a living, breathing uh, relationship with Jesus. That's what he wants for us. And so to sin is not just to mess up. It's so much more than that. Again, uh, like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that the, the quote that I read earlier from one of his books, it's not so much legal. Before coming to know Christ, it's this legal thing where we realize we do sin. But then after receiving Christ, what happens is it's, it's more like a husband who's cheated on his wife. It's not this legal thing. Because they're this relate that they are married. It is a legally binding contract. But now it's a sin against a love relationship. Do you see the difference? It's not just being good. It's so much more than that. You see, you can't honor or obey or satisfy or love God out of your own effort like you would satisfy a professor by studying hard or a spouse by being kind uh, and serving or a boss by improving the bottom line. Our only way to fulfill God's law and please God is through Jesus Christ. So now we make a turn from answering the question. Uh, we answered, how did God rescue us from sin? And now the final question here, what does the transformed life of Christ, or the, the, the transformed life of a Christ follower, rather, look like? So first, the Christ follower's mindset has changed. Romans 8.5 says, those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live according with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. So again, flesh here refers to the sinful nature. So those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what the sinful nature desires. And those who live according to the indwelling Holy Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. A simple summary of this verse would be, could be, the person who is not a Christian, that is the person who hasn't been rescued by Christ, they have their minds focused on pleasing that nature. They can't do anything else, right? We're born with the sinful nature. Again, no matter how good or religious the person seems to be, they are living for themselves. Whereas the Christ follower has their mindset on what God's spirit in them desires. But we want to be clear, salvation is by grace through the gift of faith that God gives us. It's not by our own doing. And in the same way, we don't obey Jesus on our own. Philippians 2 says that he gives us both the power and the desire to do what pleases him. Because again, we're not talking about being good. We're talking about a love relationship. And the Holy Spirit stirs us and focuses us on that which makes God happy. Loving other people, loving his word, talking to him changing the world around us with his grace and his mercy. That the Holy Spirit lives in us. So it's by grace that we are rescued from our sin, and it's by grace that we grow. It's not only, he's the, the Bible says he's the author and the perfecter of our salvation from start to finish. It's not about us. So to have your mind set on something is to be captured by it, to be focused on it. For example, when you're super hungry, your mind is focused on food. Or, you know, right now we're focused on college because my daughter's a senior. So we're, our minds are set, her mind is set on the, AC, uh, the ACT, you know, entrance exams, uh, 
and all the rest. And my mind is set on how tough it's going to be when she leaves. I'm really going to miss her. Um, but I'll see her all the time. In fact, if she doesn't return my call within an hour, she's thinking about University of Miami. I'm going to be there. I'm going there. I mean, she's my girl. Uh, so that is our mindset. So the Holy Spirit mindset moves us to be preoccupied with how in Christ we're adopted and welcomed and loved by the Lord. See, Paul's saying here in verse 5 that everyone has their, everyone will mind something. We'll either be preoccupied with the things of the Spirit or with the sinful nature. So a worldview that's focused on uh, self, that's centered on self-interest and not on Christ, it says we'll end in death here. And that whatever our mindset is on will ultimately control our lives. One results in death, the other in life and peace. In Romans 8, 6, it says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. So some of you are thinking right now, you're like, hold on, Chris, hold on just a second. I'm not all that bad, and you're saying that because my mindset, my worldview is not Christian, I'm not focused on Christ, that because of that, that's, that's going to lead, that mindset is going to lead to death, eternal separation from God. I mean, you're thinking to yourself, I'm really not that bad of a person. I mean, that seems a little extreme. But let me clarify. You can be a great person, but still have a mind governed by the sinful nature and therefore be separated from God. Because remember, we said that we're saved by grace and we're made acceptable to God, not by our own efforts, but Christ in us. And God created humanity to flourish in a relationship with him, enjoying him and loving him as we live in his world. So being controlled by our own desires rather than his can only lead to a life that's far less than it should be. We are far less human in his created intent for us. So being controlled by our own desires rather than his can only lead to a life that is focused on conflict internally and with others instead of peace, to slavery, to sin, instead of to righteousness, and to death rather than life. The next couple verses are very simple and direct. It says in Romans 8, 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Our minds are not neutral ground. The mind can't be kind of set on God. Or kind of set on the sinful nature. It, it's one or the other. On our own, we may realize that a particular sin or, or uh, uh, poor behavior is destructive. And we may even extract it from our lives. But the origin of sin is still implanted in our minds, which is hostility towards God. And some of you are still struggling with this. You're, you're thinking, Chris, when have I ever been hostile to God? I'm not hostile to God. I think God's great. I may not follow him the way other people do, but I'm not hostile to God. Let me, let me share a couple of stories that I think will help us get it. This is one I'm stealing from another pastor. Suppose a young man, I heard this story, and I think it really helps us understand. Suppose a young man goes off to college. And when he goes off, his mother, he loves his mom, and he, he, his mom says, I want you to do three things in your life. And I want you to start preparing now in college. I want you to work hard. Number two, I want you to treat people with respect. And number three, I want you to get a job that will change the world, that will really help people. And so he does that. He goes off to college, and he works all four years to do those three things. And when he graduates, he gets a job where he's focused on all those three things. But guess what? 
he never calls his mother. Thanksgiving comes around, he never sits at her table. Christmas comes around, he, he never joins her. He never calls her, he never responds to her text, he never talks to her again. Or another story. Suppose a foreign military force were to invade our country, and one of these enemy soldiers were to tell you, I know your general will love me because I dress like a respectable soldier. I'm neat, I'm clean, I honor those under my command, and I honor my superiors, and I work to accomplish the mission of my platoon. While that soldier is a good soldier, the general would not be impressed, would he? Because the soldier's on the wrong side. Paul's not talking harder. He's not talking about trying harder to please God. Without Jesus' rescue, we're an enemy soldier, alienated like the son in the first story from God. We can't, no matter how hard we try, we'll never be in a right relationship with God simply by trying. We're only able to please God when our spiritual DNA changes. We need a DNA change. We need to become a new creation where the sin nature is removed and a new nature is implanted. Galatians 2.20 speaks of this. It says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians goes on to say that we become a new creation in him. So Jesus wants to give us a new nature, and that's what baptism symbolize, symbolizes. When you're immersed into the water, it's a symbol about how we've died with him to sin. The sin nature has been removed, and when we come up out of the water, we have new life in him. We've been resurrected and filled with the Holy Spirit. So the mindset of the believer is different from the non-believer. It doesn't mean the believer's perfect. Certainly Christians still sin. But the mind controlled by the sinful nature is categorically hostile to God. But that one controlled by the Spirit enjoys life and peace. Not only that, but the destiny of the believer is different. Not just the mindset, but the destiny of the believer is different. It says in Romans 8 9, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. So the person who has the Spirit, whose spiritual DNA has been changed, who has a new birth, they have a different destiny. And death here is referring to both physical and spiritual death. The believer will die physically. All people will die. But they will experience what's called the second resurrection. Their spirit has already been resurrected when they receive Christ. Again, their spiritual DNA has changed. But then one day, they'll be given, uh, after they physically die, they will be given a new body, a perfect body. You see, God's whole plan from the very beginning, after we chose to sin, he's been restoring humanity ever since. He's adding people to his kingdom. Every time someone receives the rescue of Jesus Christ from sin, his kingdom grows. 
and creation is restored one little bit at a time. Every time Christians love on a community and bring the gospel to it and bring justice to it, he is recreating what sin has stolen. And then one day there'll be no more tsunamis, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more corruption for the Christ follower. And they will be physically made new. I want to finish by describing what uh, is the ultimate benefit of the transformed life. And I want to say, if you haven't been listening, listen now. And I'll invite up the worship team here now as well. In Romans 8, 14, it says this, for those who are led by the Spirit of God, listen to this, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves. This is the Holy Spirit, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba means Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. There are two things here understand background-wise. They're really important. The first is slavery. These Roman Christians were really going through it. And uh, oftentimes they would go into debt under the heavy-handed taxation system of the Roman government. In order to get out of debt, they would sell themselves into slavery. Some had cruel masters and some had good masters. Well, these cruel masters inspired a lot of fear. And God's telling us here that the Spirit does not motivate us by fear. Fear that somehow God is going to crush us. But rather by allowing us, motivating us, stirring us to cry out, Daddy. To lead us. The picture here is of an infant stroking his mother's neck. That's the picture. No, it's not about being enslaved to God as some kind of moral ball and chain. It's not what it's about. It's about receiving what every song is ultimately, just about every song out there is trying to communicate, and that is love, real love, the author of love. That's what he wants for us. The second concept here is that of adoption. In Rome, adoption was chosen by a wealthy citizen who did not have an heir, and and sonship here just means heir, not necessarily gender. So he or she would adopt someone, a child, a teen, or an adult. And the moment the adoption occurred, several things were immediately true of the new son or daughter. First, the old debts and legal obligations were paid in full. All of their debt was inherited by the person who was adopting them. Second, the adopted one got a new name and became an instant heir to the entire estate. Third, the new father became instantly liable for all the actions of the child they adopted. But finally, the new adopted person had new obligations to honor and please their new father out of love and affection. Now, this adopted child, the concept wouldn't be, well, in order for me to inherit the estate, I got to jump through all these hoops. I got to do all these things to somehow please my new parent. No. It was now legal. I got to somehow do something because you've taken away all my debts. No, it's legal. The debts are now theirs and they're paid in full. And here's the most important thing. Get this. Who chooses to adopt? The child or the parent? It's the parent, right? The parent adopts the child. It's their choice. 
It's not about trying harder. Adoption is something the parent does, not the child. So to receive Christ, you're going to hear about how to do that in a moment. Some of you are thinking, I I want this adoption. I want to be able to cry out, Daddy, to God. I want that relationship with Him. There's something stirring inside of me right now. It's not about trying harder. It's about being in Christ. Tonight, you can embrace him as Abba, as Daddy. In just a few moments, you'll learn how. It's a very, very, very simple prayer. Because remember, we're not the ones doing the adopting. It's something he does. Jesus, we thank you so much that you love us, you pursue us, that in Christ there's no condemnation. Lord, that if, if we know you, you can't love us any more than you do right now in this moment. We thank you that you've paid our debt that we owe because of our sin and that you've removed the, uh, the corruption of sin. It steals our joy, the way it steals our relationships, the way it steals our perspective on our past with guilt and shame, the way it fills us with pride, the way it chains us with addiction, the way it causes us to lash out and commit all kinds of injustice, the way it fills our eyes with lust for more things and to use people instead of love them, or that you died and you rose again to give us a life that is beyond our wildest dreams, to fill us with hope even when circumstances would scream at us to be in despair, to fill us with joy even in our darkest hours, and to fill us with hope when it doesn't make sense. Lord, you want to change ones in this room You want to bring them from death to life. You want to change their spiritual DNA. Right now, Lord, right now, would you stir their hearts? We're so glad they're here. In Jesus' name, amen.